Good morning, everyone. This morning we'll be looking at the glory of Christ in His triumph over death as our Savior, as the one who is the resurrection and the life. And before we get into that this morning, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. So, Paul, would you mind opening us in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, another Lord's Day that we can gather together as your people to um, fellowship with each other, but to also um, just come and uh, sit underneath your word uh, being taught and preached. Lord, I pray that you would be with Noah this morning and be with Matt um, later on as they Give us your word that you have put on them to give us. And give us hearts that are receptive. And I pray that we would just grow in our love and knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Paul. We're going to begin this morning by reading from Genesis 3, verses 19 through 20, just as a springboard for the class this morning. And I'd like to look at uh, the class this morning really in, in five chunks of thought. Firstly, we'll look at the curse of death and how it's stamped upon the Pentateuch and particularly the book of Genesis. And nextly, we'll look at how there's a triumph over death, even in the Pentateuch, and this great hope that the people of God had even over death through the work of God. And then as we get into the Gospel of John and the writings of John, we'll see how uh, there is an abundant triumph over death in the Son of God and in His work, and more particularly in the raising of Lazarus and in Christ's own death and resurrection, we see the glory of of who our Savior is as the resurrection and the life and the perfection of His work and the great hope that you and I have because of Christ. But we'll begin by looking at Genesis 3, just the curse of death being proclaimed upon um, Adam and and all of his posterity. So can someone read for us Genesis 3, 19-20? Thanks, Diego. That's good. So we see this great curse being proclaimed upon Adam. What God had spoken, what God had warned uh, in His great love, that if they sinned against Him, they would surely die. That word was not vain. But God's curse of death is carried out upon them 
for their sin. And from dust, Adam was formed, and to the dust, he would return. Nothing short of death is the wages of sin, of, of Adam's sin and our sin, of this rebellion that we have against the Lord, against the one who is our maker and the great I am. Us rebelling against him results in the curse of death. And as we look at this curse of death uh, upon the people of God, uh, really upon all create all creation in the Pentateuch, what are some ways that as we look at the Pentateuch, we see this sobering curse and the impacts and the soberness of death upon the Pentateuch? What are some ways that we see the soberness of death and that curse and its gravity in the Pentateuch? Well, I mean, it's not their physical death, but Adam and Eve are immediately cast out of the garden. That's right. So there's a, a, um, a you know, it's not just a physical death even. You know, we, we can see even how there is a, a spiritual death in the curse, a, a being separated from the presence of God. And certainly we see that being overcome through the work of Christ. Especially in the early chapters of Genesis, what are some ways that we see the gravity of this curse being carried out? When Cain killed Abel, what was the consequence to That's right. So as we leave Genesis chapter 3, very quickly following this, this curse in the inspired narrative, in chapter 4, verse 8, we have one of their children... Abel being his life being cut short, uh, one of their sons going to the grave even before them. And so we see the curse of death and the effects of that being carried out so quickly. Does anyone know what Abel's name means in Hebrew? Abel means vanity. And so there's this great vanity to Abel's life being cut short and this, apart from the work of Christ, that uh, really all of our children could be named Abel, that all of life would be a vanity of vanities apart from the work of Christ and just the, the brevity of Abel's life and really the brevity of all of our children's lives. And I think the, the weightiness of the curse of death feels even stronger to us when we look not just at our own death that, that is inevitable, but when we realize that even our children and our children's children are going to the grave. And I think that's a particularly sobering thought for us, that whether our children die in the womb or in early childhood or before us at some point, or whether our children live to be 120 years old, that every single one of our children is going to the grave. And all of our children's children, it's a, a, there's a generational death that if we were settled in one place, cemeteries can be filled over with just our name. 
You could go into a seminary and just see tombstones with Rundle all over them, or you know, fill in your name and just the soberness of that. And and we see that in Genesis chapter five in, in this genealogy. Um, so so really, all these early chapters in particular in the book of Genesis, just the the weightiness of the curse of death being carried out. I think Pastor Matt did a a good job when he was preaching through Genesis, just showing the unnaturalness of death and the weightiness of death, particularly as we got to Genesis chapter 5, and the the weightiness of uh, this refrain that's repeated over and over again in, in Genesis chapter 5. And what is that in the genealogy? And he died. And he died over and over and over again. And he died. And so this, this soberness and this unnaturalness to death and the curse of death being carried out generationally um, in Genesis. Then in, in Genesis chapter 6, there's this soberness to our lives being cut short all the more that whereas uh, men used to live even as many as over 900 years um, as Methuselah now we're going to the grave even quicker our lives are cut even more short so there's a limit of 120 years placed upon the lives of men it's also a, a peculiar soberness to the ends of the first and last books of the Pentateuch, so the end of, of Genesis and the end of Deuteronomy, and how, how do both of those books end? What events concludes Genesis and then Deuteronomy? That's right. So we we end in Genesis 50, verse 26. Could someone read that for us? Genesis 50, 26. Uh, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So the book of Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. And then if someone could read Deuteronomy chapter 34, Verse five. So Moses, the of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Thanks. So, so we then we end the entire Pentateuch with the death of Moses. Moses being outside the promised land in Moab, um, looking upon the promised land, and he dies there. And so we have this sobering conclusion uh, to Genesis and Deuteronomy with, um, with death, and really death stamped all over the Pentateuch and the effects of death. Is there anything else that, that comes to mind as we think of the curse of death and the, the weightiness of it being stamped upon these early books of God's Word? Final plague 
was the death of all all Egypt's people. Absolutely. And any Israelites who did not put the blood on them. That would be one issue. Absolutely. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into that in a moment. I think that's a great point, and and really we see that as an example of God saving His people and delivering His people from death um, in His grace. And so that's that's the next point I want us to consider. That's how even in the Pentateuch we see a triumph over death and this great hope that the people of God had in God as the one who delivers and saves his people from death. We should not read the Pentateuch with a mind like a Sadducee. We should, we should read it seeing the, the glory of God and the glory of his work in delivering his people from death. We should read it with the hope of the resurrection in the forefront of our minds, even from the books of Moses. And so even as we're looking at all of these passages that see the effects of death, even in them, uh, there's this great hope of triumphing over death through the work of God's redemptive work. And so um, in Genesis chapter 5, in the midst of this death that's generational, uh, one man dying after another, what happens with the seventh in the genealogy? That's right. Enoch walks with God and was not, for God took him. And how could, how could the Sadducees read this and not see that God is the God of the, of the living? God is the God of the living. He delivers his people from death. Where did, where did Enoch go if he did not go to the grave? He went uh, to be with God. And so we see this great hope, even in the midst of death, and out of the darkness of it, that God delivers his people in the abundance of his grace. Another example is even in uh, the conclusion of Genesis and Deuteronomy. Uh, those are sobering conclusions to those books, but they're not passages in which there's a defeat for the people of God uh, in the sense that Joseph and, and Moses didn't die as defeated men. And we see that in a number of ways. Um, Joseph dies pouring out the blessing of God upon his uh, posterity. Uh, we see Moses dying looking upon the promised land and the fulfillment of God's promises. We see also this great care taken for the bodies of Joseph and Moses. And even in that, in the care that's taken for their bodies, we see this great hope in the resurrection. And there's a, there's a care for their bodies taken because of the hope that God's people have in God and in His redemption. And so, what happens, what happens to the body of Moses, for example, at the end of Deuteronomy? That's right. And who, who buries him? That's right. So God himself has this great care for the body of Moses and buries him, we know, through uh, the writings of Jude 
in the spirit that he's buried through the archangel Michael uh, serving God in burying Moses. And what's more, we see that Moses dies in a, in a peculiar way. Um, if, we, if we go on to read in Deuteronomy uh, 34, verse 7. Someone read that for us, Deuteronomy 34, 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Thanks, Spirit. So he dies in a peculiar way. Uh, Moses doesn't die as a as a normal man. He's 120 years old, but his eye his eyesight isn't dim in the slightest. He's he's stronger than me. I, I'm I, I can say that uh, confidently. And and so we see this unnaturalness to his death. We see a, a triumph over death, even in his death. Um, the the natural effects of death haven't haven't come upon him and. I love how uh, Thomas Watson describes death and the decay of our bodies and really shows how once we're in our upper 20s, really, we've, we've already begun decay. Uh, we've already be- begun this, this quick journey to the grave, in a sense, in which our, our bodies are decaying. And as they're decaying, uh, he describes this as, as if death is creeping upon us. And so as, we, as our eyesight weakens... It's as if death is creeping into our eyes. And as our, our hearing weakens, death is creeping into our ear holes. And death is creeping upon us. But it's not so with Moses. Moses is a man of full strength through the grace of God as he goes to the grave. And so we see really throughout the Pentateuch that death doesn't triumph over the people of God. God's people overcame death even in the Pentateuch by faith in God and by faith in the promises of God and in His work of redemption. So even in, in Genesis chapter 3 that Diego read for us, what does is, what is Adam name Eve? As, even as this curse is being pronounced upon him, that to, to dust he would return, uh, for out of dust he was formed. What does he name Eve? Or sorry, <laughs> what's the, the meaning of that name? Why does he name her Eve? Mother of the That's right. So Eve, uh, in, in Hebrew, is Hava, and it means life. He names his wife life because she was the mother of all living. And so even in the midst of this pronouncement of death, Adam has hope in the promises of God. Adam has hope in this great work of God. And he names his wife Life. He names her Eve. And, and we see this, this great hope that the people of God have in God's work of redemption throughout the books of Moses. How do we see Abraham having a faith and a confidence in God in overcoming death uh, in, in the life of Abraham, for example? And, and there's some examples of that pulled in Scripture in, in Romans chapter 4 and, and Hebrews 11. What is his faith in God and in God being mightier than death? He believed that if he sacrificed Isaac, that God was able to raise him from him. Absolutely. So he has faith. And faith. That's, that's exactly true. He has this resurrection faith that God would even be able to return Isaac from the dead. He also... Um, 
I forget if it's in Hebrews, but it said that he didn't consider, I need to remember the wording of it, but essentially that his old age was not an obstacle to having Isaac, that he trusted God and was then able to perform. That's exactly right. So, so Abraham has faith that God can bring life even from the deadness of his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb in bringing life out of that death and out of that old age. Um, Joseph dies in faith that God's people would bring, that God would bring his people out of Egypt. And Moses dies in faith and seeing the fulfillments of the promises of God. And so, so even as we look at these books of Moses, uh, we see that God's people overcome by faith. 1 John 5, verse 4 says, Whoever is born of God, or who. Sorry, I, I think I, I wrote it down wrong, but 1 John 5, verse 4, let me, let me just turn there. 1 John 5, 4 talks about how we overcome by faith. And so he says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And, and so it's by faith that we overcome the world, and it's by faith that the people of God overcame even death, uh, trusting in a God who is mightier than death in uh, the books of Moses. Um, we also see resurrection pictured in a striking way um, in the Exodus that Joyce mentioned. And so we, we spoke about this in the week on the Passover. But just to briefly go back there, we, we see that there is this salvation from death in the last sign that God uh, in the Exodus is not only delivering His people from slavery, but he's delivering his people from death itself. And so in the Passover, there's a deliverance from this last sign of death, a death in their place by the Passover lamb. Um, And we also see that they're being brought up out of this land of Egypt that's seen as a land of death in a number of ways in Exodus. And so they're brought up out of the land of death And the Exodus is thus seen as a redemption of God's Son, His firstborn Son, as He called them in Exodus chapter 4, from death itself. It's a resurrection of God's Son, Israel. And that theme of Exodus being a resurrection from the dead is really carried throughout the entire Old Testament so that whenever God is promising Return to the promised land, a return from the second exodus after God's people were exiled from the lands, that often these promises are closely tied in with resurrection promises and resurrection imagery. And the return of God's people is seen as a resurrection from the dead. And it points even to something far greater in the ultimate resurrection and life from the dead that we would have 
through the work of Christ. And so we see as we look at these promises that uh, as we read them not as Sadducees, but as those that see God's work of resurrection, even in the Old Testament, the richness and the glory of God's promises as a God who triumphs over death and gives us life from the dead. Just a few examples of that. Isaiah says in, in chapter 25, verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. The Lord Jehovah will wipe away tears from off all faces. Where do we hear that language in the New Testament? Revelation. Absolutely. So we, we hear that being fulfilled perfectly at the end of Revelation. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. Ezekiel 37, 12-13 Behold, I will open your graves, and I will cause you to ascend out of your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you will know that I am Jehovah when I open your graves and cause you to ascend out of your graves, O my people. Hosea 6, verse 2 After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. And we will live before his face. And again, Hosea thirteen fourteen. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where are your plagues, O death? Where is your sting, O grave? And again, where do we where do we hear that language in the New Testament? Yeah, absolutely. Through the, the writings of the Apostle Paul. Um, commenting on our triumph that we have over death in 1 Corinthians 15. And then as we get to um, the writings of John, um, we see that we see the glory of the work of Christ, the glory in His uh, resurrection and life, His resurrection power, His triumph over death in such glorious ways. I think uh, in many ways the Apostle Paul would rightly be thought of as the Apostle of the Resurrection um, who wrote so richly on the Resurrection. But in many ways John shows us the glory of the Resurrection, the glory of Christ um, and His power over death in such a rich way as one who is life himself and has um, all power, and who triumphs over death in such a glorious way. And so as we look at the writings of John and the Gospel of John, um, what, are, what are some ways that we see his triumph over death and how he has the power over it and the life is in him and he gives life to all that he wills? Where do we see that in the Gospel of John? Absolutely. So, I don't know which chapter. yeah. So, chapter eleven in in the raising of Lazarus, which I want to get to in a, in a little bit. But I think it's so rich that in the writings of John, um, how he shows that 
Similarly, this, this striking statement that not only does God possess love, but God is love. Jesus not only is the source of life, but He is life. He is the resurrection Himself and the life. And so in chapter 14, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. First John ends in this way by saying in, in chapter 5, verse 20, This is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the eternal life Himself. And then chapter 11, as <clears throat> Joyce mentioned as well. Really, as we, as we look at the Gospel of John, um, throughout the Gospel, everywhere we turn, we see this, this glorious theme being carried through the Gospel that Jesus is the one who is giving life and giving us victory over death in His work as our Savior. Um, Chapter 5 is one example. He says in chapter 5, verse 21, For as the Father raises up the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. And then in verses 25 through 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has given to the Son to have life in Himself. Chapter 6, verse 40, And this is the will of Him that sent me, that all of which He has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. And in chapter 8, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if any man keep my saying, he shall never see death. As Jesus promises that those who trust in Him, those who keep His sayings, those who believe in Him, would never see death, in what way do we, do we never see death? Because certainly um, we're all going to the grave still um, unless Christ returns first. And Christ uh, made that very clear, um, even as He's talking to Peter at the end of the Gospel. But in what ways do we not see death as those that trust in Him? Spiritual death. That's right. So we have a deliverance from a spiritual death. In, in what sense, Paul, are we delivered from a spiritual death? When we die, we go immediately into glory with the Father. That's right. So we have, we have eternal life, and that we, we have a, a spiritual life that will be with God uh, through the work of Christ. And that eternal life I think is is shown so richly in the writings of John to be an eternal life that begins not just in heaven, not just in the distant future, but it begins at our new birth. It begins at our regeneration, upon our faith in Him. So we have eternal life in Him even now. Um, chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He that believes on me has everlasting life. Everlasting life is possessed now 
by believers in Christ to the praise of His glory. So that we have eternal life. We possess it now through faith in Christ. We have eternal life in Him even now. 1 John 5 reiterates that, that we possess it now. It says, God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. And in in chapter 17, uh, as Jesus prays to His Father, He shows that the substance of eternal life is, is what? How does He describe the substance of eternal life at the beginning of His high priestly prayer? That's right. And in what, what sense is he using that word knowing? My understanding of it is being in relationship with, like an unostracized relationship. It's the restored reconciliation. That's right. So we could think even back to uh, Adam knowing his wife. Uh, that The way that language is used throughout the scripture is this, this intimate, close knowledge. Um, Adam didn't just know things about his wife. He didn't just know that she was five foot two and had brown eyes. Um, but he knows her personally. He delights in her. There's this close communion that he has with her. And uh, in a similar way, we have a communion with God, with the triune God. We have a a knowledge, a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in that knowledge, we have eternal life now. We have the joy and the glory and the power of a resurrection life even now through the work of Christ and through the triumph that He's given us over a spiritual death so that our souls are alive in Christ and united to Christ and dead to sin, and alive to Him. We also see, you know, as Paul mentioned, just the, the truth that's closely connected to that, that, um, that when we go to die, we're going to be with the Lord. And so there's a, a deliverance, uh, even from an eternal death, a deliverance from the second death, as, as God describes in Revelation 20, uh, verses 12 through 14, um, the eternal judgment is described as the second death. And so when Christ delivers us from death, He delivers us from the second death. He delivers us from eternal judgment. And, and all of the, the weights and the soberness of that death that we deserve because of our sin, that we have earned by our own sin, to be eternally cut off from the great I Am, to be cut off from the source of all life, and not just to be separated from Him, but to be under the infinity, under the the, uh, infinite power and wrath of the everlasting God in outer darkness, in eternal exile. And, and God describes that in the most sobering way, the second death, 
uh, in Revelation such that it's a, it's a mysterious, eternal dying. Um, it's, it's a dying that never ends. And so as, as mysterious as the burning bush was, such that uh, there is life sustains uh, in this fire, that, that uh, the fire is not consumed, it continues to burn, and there's life in itself, um, and it just continues to burn mysteriously. It doesn't, doesn't go out. And in a similar way, uh, there's a, a mystery to the judgment of God in hell, such that it's an everlasting death. Um, it's a, even though you know, one would think that certainly you know, we should be dead already. You know, we, there should be an annihilation under the, the weight of God's wrath in hell. It's, it's an eternal dying, a dying that never ends. It's everlasting burnings, and that, uh, yet we're never annihilated. It's a smoke and a torment that continues forever and ever. And yet Jesus delivers us from that death through His work on the cross in drinking the cup of God's wrath for us in our place and dying in our place as the Lamb of God. And lastly, He gives us even uh, a triumph over physical death even though we are going to die. He still triumphs over physical death in breaking the power that death has over us, even physically, such that death and all of its power is left as an impotent enemy for the people of God, such that death can just be described um, in, in what way? That, that uh, I think Tim really helpfully drew out the richness of that uh, language that God so often uses in the Word of God for death, and we see it, Jesus using it in John chapter 11 and elsewhere, how is death often described as a sleep, right? It's, it, and, and we see, I, I think, you know, Tim did, did a helpful um, job of, of showing just the, the triumph that we have over death, just the richness even of that euphemism for death. It's just merely a sleep for those who are in Christ. Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Now I want to turn uh, to John chapter 11 um, next in, in seeing the glory of Christ, particularly in His um, resurrection, His defeats of death in, in raising Lazarus from the dead. So we look at John chapter 11. Could someone read for us verses 23 through 26, and then we'll skip down to 39 through 40. So 23 through 26 and 39 through 40. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then 29. Sorry, then we'll skip down to 39 through 40. 
39. Um, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Thanks, Paul. I think when we see the glory of Christ as the resurrection, the life, so richly in this penultimate, this, uh, this last miracle before uh, the final miracle, miracle that he performs in his own resurrection in the Gospel of John. And, and we see it so richly um, in this, this raising of Lazarus. And really just as we see Martha and Mary weeping over the death of their brother, we're reminded of just the, the sobering nature of death and the sobering power and finality of death um, that is brought about under this curse for our sin. In, in Luke chapter 8, when Jairus' daughter had died, Jesus was going to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. And then before he gets there, uh, news comes that she is dead. And the people that bring the news say it in a little bit of a cold manner. They just, they just say, your daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. There's this uh, sobering nature to it. There's this finality that they feel over death. That the yes, uh, they might think that Jesus has much power, that he was able to work many mighty miracles, but now uh, his daughter has died, and there's there's no more hope for her. There's no more help. Uh, for her that even Jesus can bring. And yet we see uh, Jesus revealing His glory in being stronger even in death. And even the finality that we can feel over death being completely broken uh, through the power and the glory of Christ. And John uh, explicitly says in, in John chapter 11 that this Revealed the glory of Christ. The rising of, of Lazarus revealed the glory of Christ. And it's similar to the first miracle, the changing of water uh, into wine, that that revealed the glory of Christ. But, but this is far greater um, in, in Christ's resurrection power. Much more revealed who our Savior is. Lazarus had been dead for, for how many days? Four days, right? So he's 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 really dead. He he's all the way dead. Uh, you, know, you think about in Princess Bride, uh, you know, the miracle worker says, you know, there's some that are mo- you know mostly dead, and and there's you know, and then you could be all the way dead, right? I'm, I'm forgetting the quote exactly, but but Lazarus is all the way dead. He's four days dead. He he stinks, and and yet Jesus has a power even over uh, complete death and decay. And, and nothing can limit uh, His power. Um, he is the Almighty God. And, and so, when the dead hear His voice, when they hear the voice of the Son of God, uh, those who are in Him, they come forth. They're risen from the dead, as He had said in chapter 5. And we can think about 
the resurrection at the last day, um, that there will be many who have died in Christ who are completely dead. They're, they don't, they're not just four days dead. Uh, their bodies don't just stink, but they are completely disintegrated. Um, there will be those in Christ that are fish food, that are uh, cannibal food. Uh, there are those who will just be ashes. Um, John Knox, his, his, um, his burial place is covered over with a parking lot in Scotland. And we think about so many saints of old that are just completely uh, obliterated in death or just completely covered over. And yet that will not uh, keep them from Christ when they hear the voice of the Son of God and His complete power over death. And so we see in John chapter 11 and in the, the fullness of Christ's power and the fullness of our Savior's power, um, just this, this laughable, laughableness of death, really, this, this complete uh, defanging of death in the perfect victory of Christ. And so in John chapter 12, uh, the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. And that's, it's just laughable. It's, it's this weighty irony that they, they want to put Lazarus to death. Jesus just rose him from the dead. Uh, it's, it's this weighty irony to it. And, and we see that death is completely impotent. It has no power before our Lord and Savior. Lastly, we see the glory of Christ and his, his triumph over death in His own death and resurrection. We see that in so many ways in the Gospel of John, um, in the writings of John, but I just want to quickly look at Revelation chapter 1 in the time that we have remaining in, uh, in Revelation chapter 1. And we see that, that our salvation from death, our inheritance of eternal life, only comes about through the work of Christ, in His perfect work as our Savior. Revelation is this glorious unveiling of the glory of Christ and shows His glory in the most beautiful ways. And um, interestingly, John begins his, uh, his books of, of John, 1 John and Revelation in particular, with all beginning with this idea of Jesus being uh, the beginning Himself. And, and so even as in Revelation chapter 1, the Father is described as the one who is and who was and who is to come, the everlasting God, the Son of God is described in the exact same way in Revelation chapter 1. And we see actually a threefold pronouncement of that truth that Jesus is the everlasting God, that He is Jehovah Himself. And so we see in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is equal with the Father in every way. And again in verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega, 
the first and the last. And yet there's this glorious uh, spin on the third declaration of who Jesus is. Um, as he's described as the one who is the self-existing, glorious I am, the one who was, who always existed with the Father from eternity past, uh, who the one, the one who is before the beginning, who is the beginning himself, um, the one who is to come, that we know uh, from Hebrews chapter 1, which is quoting the Psalms, that uh, even when the galaxies are folded up like a garment, that Jesus will remain. He is the one who is to come. And yet, instead of saying that He is and was and is to come, in verses 17 through 18, after the Apostle John falls down as though he were dead before this vision of the glory of Christ, Jesus puts his hand upon him and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. And I think it's such a striking description of who our Savior is and and really puts the death and resurrection of Christ uh, in its proper perspective. That Jesus, who is the everlasting God, who always was, was dead. And and we see just the the soberness and the... uh, the incredibleness of the gospel and the glory of what our Savior did for us, that Jesus, in delivering us from death, died in our place, that Jesus, who always was, was dead, that He bled and died for our salvation. So we think of First uh, John 3.16, saying that by this we know the love of God, that He laid down His life for us. Or, or uh, the, the hymn that I love, uh, that, that we sing, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We see the, the fullness of the curse of death, and really the fullness of all of the curse uh, from Genesis chapter 3, being taken by Christ himself so perfectly for our salvation. Uh, Jesus bearing the weights of our own sin so fully that he would bleed and die for our salvation. And, and we're really just left to say, um, you know, who is like him? It's, it, we're always driven back to this great question of Moses, who is like you? He's incomparable. And when, we're, when we think about all of the philosophies that have come and gone over the span of man's existence and all of the religions that have come and gone and, and all of the inventions uh, that man can come up with about life and about God, no one can come even anywhere close to it. Uh, it's describing the glory of who Jesus is. It's describing the glory of His perfect work as our Savior, as the one who would even die for us. It's, it's foolishness to the world. 
It's a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's the wisdom of God. And yet, even in that, death isn't the strongest power uh, in the cosmos. Death isn't stronger than Christ. And so Jesus is the Almighty. He is stronger than death. Not only did He die, but He says, I'm alive forevermore. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And it's because Christ lives that we live also. Uh, He says in John chapter 14, Because I live, you live also. Jesus is stronger than death. And we see that in John 2 and John 10, as Jesus describes uh, His resurrection, we see that Christ Himself rose from the dead by His own power. Um, It wasn't just the Father and the Spirit that raised the Son, but the Son raised Himself, that He had power to lay His life down. He had power to take it again as the Son of God. Uh, he He is the Almighty One. And we worship such a wonderful and glorious Savior who is Himself the resurrection and the life. As we, as we think about um, just the, the triumph of Christ over death and over the wages of our own sin, um, what, what are some things that, in particular, what are, what are particular comforts and encouragements and, and applications that we can take from that as we, as we um, trust in Him today uh, in our own lives as the Savior who is the resurrection and the life. For one, um, he says that even though we are faithless, he is going to be faithful. Because I think there are times when we recognize we're not, we're not making it. That's right. And, but to know that he continues faithful. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's faithful. Um, he, he's faithful unto death. He's, he's our, our faithful Savior. And I, I think it's striking that, that even as you and I face death for ourselves and even as we face death uh, for our loved ones and, and we, we see even our loved ones going to the grave and uh, just the sorrow and uh, the finality that we can, we can feel over that. You know, as our, as our loved ones um, are over the grave and they're, they're in the caskets over the hole in the ground about to be lowered down in, um, we have a Savior who crossed that river Jordan, that cold river before us. Uh, we have a Savior who went even to death itself and He's able to sympathize with us even in death. Uh, dying in our place. And so what encouragement and strength can we have uh, to face death with such a loving Savior and such a mighty Savior who has completely triumphed over it and death is now merely a door uh, for the believer to bring us into His presence, uh, into a world in which there is no death uh, forevermore. Let's, let's close in, in prayer. Randy, would you mind closing us? Lord, we 
we thank you that you are in the war. We thank you, Lord, that you have power over everything, including death. We need fear it not. Lord, we're grateful that you give us life, that you guide us through all the hard places, and that you are with us in every second of every day. Lord, now we pray that as we go to church, that you will teach us, that you will make us open to your word, and that you will speak through that, through the songs, and through the prayers. And we just ask, Lord, that you keep us committed and keep our eyes focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.